it is 18 hours and 29 minutes and 22 seconds. We're starting slightly earlier today. It's time for John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. This being Wednesday, the 13th of July, 2022. Our general elections are now 27 days away. And being closer to the day, we're going to start being slightly more focused. In this episode, the word of the day, in its plural form, is manifestos. With opinion polls as our guide, we have chosen the top two contenders for today, and we shall address the other two in another episode. So, for those of you in the know, those two must be Kenya Kwanza and Azimio One Kenya. And um, to discuss manifestos, one must primarily address economics. So, my mystery guest, who's going to make his, himself known to us later on, is an economist. And if that kind of plug means anything to you, he is a Harvard-educated economist. Therefore, in short, a very clever guy. Now, I'm not an economist, and I may not be a very clever guy, but I might represent the interests, as usual, of the lay person. And we're talking manifestos. The very first thing I'd like to do you'd realize that today it doesn't make sense to sort of go out into the streets and ask people, which manifesto do you prefer? We can go straight into the conversation. There's lots to cover. And we must try to be somewhat thematic and guided in our conversation. So to my mystery guest, first of all, I would say, why not go backwards before we go forwards? with a measure of stock-taking. And again, I'd represent the views of the common man, the common woman, who has on occasion the opportunity to read the papers, listen to the radio. And what do we hear? We've built a, a railway line, which was more expensive than it ought to be, and it's going to take us a long time to pay back. We've built an expressway, which again is going to take us 25, 30 years to uh, pay back. Uh, we're in a state where there's a lot of famine and people are starving. Uh, the cost of living is exorbitantly high. And those who wish to lead us on this magical day, from this magical day, August the 10th, 12th, 11th, 13th, there's going to be this new paradise when everything is going to be sorted out by virtue of our new manifestos, manifestos being guidelines for the future. So, uh, Mwanangu, this is a young mystery guest, I'd put to you, where's the money going to come from? We're broke. Asante sana, Mwalimu, and it's a pleasure to have. Thanks, thank you so much for having me here on the studios, Capital FM. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I think you've raised a very fundamental point. All um, the manifestos have made certain proposals. And one of the big questions that we must ask is where will the money come from? Um, the take they have given, um, each candidate has given a different perspective. One candidate has said we'll fight corruption. Kenya loses a lot of money to corruption. They say at one point the president said Kenya loses two billion shillings every day to corruption. So in their argument is if we can reduce corruption then we can find the funds to do this. Um, another group has talked about the tax policies really being budget neutral and I'll get into that um, as we move forward. 
Well, uh, let's go back one. First of all, this idea that the president said there'd be two billion. You know how one can use sort of hyperbole, extreme statement. I don't think we should really take him at his word as if he'd sort of heard two billion. I think he was just saying we lose a lot of money every day to corruption. So let's not do a sort of Boris Johnson thing on him and said, poor dear, you said this to us, now you're lying. But I did ask you more specifically as an economist, can you promise to give your children wonderful gifts for Christmas when there's no money in the family bank account? You know, John, that's a, that's not a Harvard image, but it it suits my purpose just fine. I think you're absolutely spot on, and I think it's it's a question that I've raised several times. That when we point to the amount of money we lose to corruption, particularly pointing to what the president said, it was more symbolic. I believe at that point, what possibly what the president did was to calculate uh, the scale of grand corruption in Kenya, then to divide it by 365 days, then to come to that solution. But there are people who've taken it literally. They've said, actually... Well, let's forgive them and move on. <laughs> right. Yes, because we but, don't want but, to spend 45 minutes doing sort of but, calculus. Right, but the, but the problem here, Mwalimo, is mm. there are people who've actually taken it literally mm. and... Um, Anytime you ask about the fiscal policy right. of how it will support, you always returned back to that question of we know where the loopholes are. Yes. So it's not even something that is pedestrian in nature. It's, right. it's, it's a theme that it's at the highest levels of the policy. And that's what shocks me quite a bit because now it takes away from talking about the place of taxes, VAT. Are we going to raise and as an economist, we look at two key areas of fiscal policy and monetary policy. And the way the Western world, if you look at a, a, a typical manifesto in the West, whether it become a Republican Party or a Tory, they'd always say, tell you, you know, we're looking at corporate tax. We're going to try and reduce corporate tax, or we're going to try and reduce VAT. And by that, we'll have more people um, affording more things. But we don't get that. That's really... Lakini kwa ujumla, mambo. It's a very fundamental thing. I'm sure that in your studies, you have this sort of Nietzschean idea, that's why I first encountered it, that maybe there is this idea of a gradation in society and only those who have the education and the competence to understand should be involved in the process of defining the way societies are run. Now, our electorate, for the most part, you would not say that they were illiterate, but they are certainly not that educated. So when you start putting out a manifesto and saying this is fiscal policy, this is economic policy, whom do you wish to understand that those particular principles? Do you wish my um, house help to understand it? Do you want the security guard outside my gate to understand it? Do you want my people back home in the village to understand it? Well, you don't have to use it in the big terms of fiscal policy, but you can talk about VAT. VAT is something your ordinary person understands. Explain it to me in one word. You know, everybody who goes to buy bread yes. in the store, they'll tell you, Serikali imeongeza VAT kwa mkate. No, they don't say Serikali imeongeza VAT. Like after the budget. They say wameongeza bay. Bay. The guiding principle is, is, is the price of, of, of the loaf of bread, not the economic principles that have made it imperative to raise it. If you say uh, there's war in Ukraine, the wheat flour has whatever, there's problems in Saudi, therefore the cost of petrol, Wananchi don't understand that. During the they budget, don't. when when you tell them that Abeyamkati uh, Mendaju, Abeyamafuti Mendaju, um, they do understand that here Abey Mendaju kwa sababu fulani kwa sababu ya kodi. Right. So many of them, in fact, you'd be surprised sometimes because I do have these conversations with um, sometimes your ordinary person on the street, and there is a feeling that our taxes have become burdensome to... They do understand that we're in the part of the world that Russia, Ukraine is happening, fuel prices are going up, but they also do understand that serikali kona madeni na serikali lazma iongeze kodi 
kwa bidhaa ndipo saweza kulipa hiyo deni Okay um I'll take your word for it I I would be slightly more skeptical as to the level of understanding mm-hmm. but I I will raise another kind of uh, recurrent issue and that is that when we have leaders who've been in the game for 20 30 years uh one running for the presidency for the fifth time and who are actually part of government you as a citizen forget being an economist what convinces you that on a magical day having got together with a group of really clever clever people like yourselves because i'm sure they don't write the manifestos themselves they 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 call upon the wisdom of people who know about these things do you think that you can change once you become the leader you suddenly change things that you were unable to change for the last 20 10 50 years well, the simple answer is yes and it's yes because situations have changed circumstances have changed and i liked what you said about at the beginning about going back into kenya's history uh, because when you go really really back one thing that i've noticed is every 30 years in kenya you have a new generation that comes up with new concerns so you go back to the 1890s you know when they're building the railway it was really about the british east africa company really opening up the kenya region it took about 30 years before the first signs of agitation the african agitation towards colonial rule those are the days of harry thuku you know leading the first the first protests Now that's the 1930s. You add another 30 years in the 1960s. Now you have an independent Kenya. You know, Mzungu amerudi Ulaya and you have the first new government. These are the Tom Boyers, uh, the Jomo Kenyatta's. Then you add another 30 years in the early 90s, then people are agitating for political pluralism. The repeal of section 2A So we remember the Orengos, we remember the Railas and stuff. So you had another 30 years it takes you to today now. And today the concerns of this generation it's not really about multi-party politics, it's not really about political independence, it's about economic freedom, economic independence. In fact, one of the parties talks about the third and final liberation, the economic liberation. So to answer your question, yes, if it was not a concern in the past because in the past we are thinking of multi-party politics we are thinking of independence now it's a concern and that's what you'll find for the first time in Kenya's history all the political parties have strived to put the economy at the heart because we're in a country of the median age is 19 years very young country high unemployment rate you know really and you you almost a million people are entering the job market every year so the concerns of this generation have forced the political class possibly to abandon maybe the concerns of the past and really start providing the economy and that's why everybody is talking about the economic models whether we love this economic model versus that economic model so it is possible for people who in the past have never associated themselves with economic thinking but only by reading what's happening in the country now have to evolve and morph their ideas into uh, an economic ideal so we might find things that would have been untenable in the past but right now are actually quite uh, almost urgent if you so, like so may i draw you um, on the the lenses as eco- economists lenses what what are the all important lenses towards viewing this brave new world well this brave new world wants kenya to produce more i think that's the fundamental thesis kenya is a country blessed with a young dynamic labor force excellent land um capital we have the potential to produce more but the biggest question even foreigners ask when they come to kenya is why does Kenya import so much in a country where you've been blessed with what we call all the four factors of production you have your capital you have your land 
you have your labor, you have entrepreneurs. Some of the best entrepreneurs in the region are coming out from these. So the million-dollar question, Mwalimu, has been what has been stopping this country from harnessing all these four factors of production to produce more, pro- more food, more uh, manufactured items, create more jobs, create more high-quality jobs, uh, export more. We are a net importer in this country. Even with countries like Tanzania and Uganda where we used to export, now that we are importing from them. So I think that's the lens that an economist has to observe this. How do we produce more? And what in these manifestos will touch on any of the factors of production, if only to make the country's production levels go up? Well, knowing our preoccupation more with uh, ideas and with you, the individual, uh, much as we love you, uh, we're going to take a break. And then maybe in the time left to us, we're not going to endorse any particular manifesto, but there is time enough for us perhaps to elucidate and evaluate what is being presented to the citizen. A short break. The best mix of music Capital FM Wanangu, when I was in school, it was a long time ago, Uh, The idea was that um, the pillars of the Kenyan economy were tourism and agriculture. Am I right in saying that if I read the manifestos right, there's little or scant reference to tourism? Does that strike you as odd? It's odd, yes, because it's a critical fact of the economy. Uh, But there's a bit of nuance to it too. Um, 20, 30 years ago, Um, Kenya's main foreign exchange came from uh, your tourisms, your teas, your coffees, which still play a big role. But things have changed somewhat in the last few years. We are seeing new sources of revenue coming to the country. We are finding diaspora remittances, you know, becoming one of the top sources of revenue. By which you mean, if I may just elaborate, that... um Diaspora remittances means that Kenyans who have a life abroad in the U.S. are bringing in lots of money, dollars, you know, to sort of build houses, and they're bringing lots of money into the country. Absolutely. We have talented men and women in all the capitals of all the major countries um, sending back money, um, supporting family, building homes, making investments. And for once, I'm happy that our labor force is becoming the essence of our economy. You know, back in the day, Kenya would be known for the place you go and see lions and buffaloes and giraffes. But our biggest asset today is our human capital. That's what we have top of our neighbors, Uganda and Tanzania. And so so the structure of the economy is changing. Uh, and, 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 and that I do believe even these uh, political parties do address that they have... Uh, send delegations to the UKs, the US, to try and get the diaspora vote. So it tells you um, you're almost coming full circle in terms of uh, growing our economy. But your point, uh, tourism, particularly in the coast, uh, provides such, it's a major source of income for a lot of people. And it's odd, particularly if you want that coastal vote that you'd not address. That said, there's still things that are happening even as we speak. We saw the new Utali College, the Ronald Ngala Utali College being built. But, you know, for somebody who's begging for that coastal vote, you'd, you'd want to imagine to your point that there'd be a very good um, um, hunt for that vote. And what sh- shocks me even more is right now they're trying to introduce a tourism levy, which is going to even make it harder for some of these tourist, tourism entities to to, to, to it. I would say it was an oversight. Uh, yes, focus on agriculture, but you know it's it's such a key sector that even I was surprised that it didn't get the space that it deserved. Well, um, sadly, um, I, I'm not going to be sort of um, coming back to you and and grilling you on your. Uh, we're just saying things to think about because we don't have the time. So let us move on to agriculture, and uh, we look at manifestos from the big two. 
and we see things like reviving collapsed factories and companies such as Mumias Sugar. Uh, and then if I scroll down in the interest of fairness, I suddenly come through this idea of one county, one product. So on the one hand, reviving companies that were sort of dormant, moribund, uh, why the revival when they've been moribund and dormant for the last, again, decades through successive? What's going to suddenly make Mumia Sugar rise from the dead, as it were? Well, I mean, if you're a keen follower of um, Western Kenya politics, which I'm sure you are, um, the place of the sugarcane industry is still pivotal to the lives of those people. And the politicians have picked up on that. Whether Kenya has a competitive advantage in sugarcane versus Uganda, that's something that nobody wants to talk about. But well, is that understanding? I'm, I'm talking about national policies. This conversation, we're all sort of like constant banter back and forth. Right. But sugar is a product that anybody who's sort of trying to lose weight, and there are lots of us trying to do that, being told uh, one thing to eliminate from your uh, diet is sugar. Uh, so it's a bit like sort of saying we're going to grow um, um, tobacco uh, when everybody's... Is that a long-term vision to really go back to sugar as the thing we want to produce? It's a bad thing. I'm talking to a 12-year-old. <laughs> Sweetheart, don't take too much sugar. <laughs> well, I mean, sugar, Molimo, still has its place. Um, in the economy, and it's not something that can be wished away. I think from an economist perspective, what you want to ask is, is that the best use of the acreage that is put under sugarcane? Is that the best? And that's what competitive advantage asks. Is what you're using with your piece of land, is it the most efficient, is it the most revenue-generating compared to Uganda, where you have those big sugarcane farms that are doing the same. I think that's the question that has never really been asked, really uh, put there. What the politicians do know is sugarcane processing factories means jobs, jobs for the local people. And that's what everybody needs today, really a job. So regardless of um, the nature of the job, as long as people are working and you're paying them, it is good for the nation. But again, sorry, sorry, sorry. I've got the, my bag of tricks has got so many. Let's, let's go through what I do have. We're keying down to one county, one product. This notion that there are 47 counties, uh, wouldn't there be a sort of duplication where 001 Mombasa is maybe... Maybe their product is tourism. Done. But uh, when you move across to pastoral uh, uh, counties, what are you going to tell them to do? Build lots of abattoirs and somehow change the climate so that their dying camels are moving around in their thousands and their millions? So I can understand where that thinking came from. I think that thinking came from this idea based what I talked about competitive advantage asking does each county have a competitive advantage the way you've said in the coastal area it's tourism in parts of Mount Kenya it's tea and coffee so that's I think the foundation the problem I have but competitiveness another competitive doesn't necessarily create a, a, a spirit of national unity if I'm going to look across, you know, in the days when we used to sort of say, ah, those people, they're just herdsmen, you know, you know what I'm saying? Isn't this going to come back again? I think the understanding behind that policy, which personally I don't agree with, but I think that, that the understanding behind that policy has been if each county can have one area it's really good at, then you can create interdependence with each, each country. So if you're doing your avocados in Moranga, so Moranga becomes the hub of avocados for the whole country. But the problem with Wanangu, that... we've been reading different newspapers. Right. Uh, we're talking about revamping underperforming collapsed export crops and export crops, pardon me, and right. expanding emerging ones. Now, again, in the papers, we have this... Are our leading fathers, our, our mothers, our leaders, are they part of this debate that if you turn the whole of the 
Maasai Mara into an avocado farm, uh, the wildlife are going to suffer. So again, are you going to say uh, a lot of people want us to be the next producing country after Brazil and we are going to throw by the wayside something that's been part of our, our national heritage and patrimony and matrimony from day one? I, I'm just talking about the correlation because everybody, the, the, man, the, the ceremonies to announce these manifestos were very grand, sort of ice cubes going around, bright lights, songs and everything else. But what will it mean to us as a nation if these things are carried out? And so are you saying let's grow as many avocados as we can? To the detriment of our wildlife? Uh, absolutely not. In fact, as I said earlier, I found that proposal very problematic. What I think they're trying to achieve is, for example, let's take Nakuru County. It used to be a global leader in Pyrethrum. And the governor there is really trying to revive. I think Kenya used to be among the top three uh, Pyrethrum countries in the world. Now Australia has overtaken Kenya in terms of growing of pyrethrum. So I think that's the thinking. But in my opinion, even more than what you've said, is in a free market, you can't have people in Nairobi saying, County Tanariva do this, uh, Mombasa do this. In a free market, you can't have a central place that says, this will be the thing for Moranga, this will be for Kisumu, this will, nobody can do that. In a free market, evolve. So if a competitive advantage evolves in a county, it's not... A manifesto to say for Turukana this will be oil. You'll only do oil. So it goes against the principle of the free market that in a free market it's activities emerge. It's not people who dictate those activities but it's activities in, in Mombasa you have a natural competitive advantage of oceans and white sands. So tourism naturally evolves. So I think that's the challenge with that one county one proposal. Who's to determine which county does what. So that's problematic area number one. And number two, what about the diversity of a county? Because a county is supposed to be a microcosm of a country. In a county, you're supposed to have food growing zones, you're supposed to have manufacturing growing zones. And that's the reason for that particular principle. I found it, in as much as I understood where it was coming from, I found it very problematic. Uh, sorry, just before we take the break, I'll give you a minute to respond to something else that I read. Climate smart agriculture, encourage climate smart agriculture. For one thing, that suggests that we've sort of been using climate foolish agriculture when people normally grow things which traditionally have done well wherever they are. So if you've been into growing your cassava and everything else, when you're telling the people that you're telling them to grow climate smart, are you telling uh, certain areas of the country to abandon what have been traditional subsistence crops for them. Yes, Malimo, that section of agriculture has phrases like that that yeah. uh, tend to be uh, very vague sometimes. You, you understand the intention, but when you ask about the implementation, what it means, and that's not the only one. Another phrase that is used is minimum guaranteed returns. Right. You'll see that quite a bit. Uh, I struggle with that too sometimes because what does it really mean? Because you, ca you can dictate prices, all these tea prices and coffee prices that determine on the global stage. So when you have this minimum guaranteed, so it, it's, it's, it, it tends to be a bit problematic. But I think it's coming from the idea that uh, we are left to the fact that climate is changing. Um, Kenya has been dependent on rain-fed agriculture, which is constantly disrupted by droughts. And we need to think of ways that... Uh, can process how do you how do you how do you cultivate how do you continue agriculture in an area where uh, climate change is becoming a reality i think that's the thinking but now when it comes to what exactly are the what would you say the implementations that part has been left to be very open ended uh, and yeah. it's left to sort of like the imagination of uh, the, 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 the people executing it. We'll have to, thank you very much, but we'll have to do, um, uh, take a break, but when we come back, think of the word healthcare. I'm not doing uh, very well on my demarcation. I should get to about 10 um, titles, and we're now on title three. It's going to be healthcare when we come back. Capital FM. Mwanangu, healthcare. Uh, I'll let you go first, because you know more about this than I do. But uh, in general, 
the promise is from both sides, uh, and I'm sure the other two as well, is that marvelous things are going to happen to our healthcare system. Comment. Yes, indeed. There is the idea that the possibility of universal health care in which every Kenyan is entitled to some basic health coverage, uh, primarily through uh, the health insurance fund, NHIF, uh, but also through other entities. But there's that idea, uh, which is also is in the current Big Four agenda, and which the president has been pursuing, and we have got funding from Japan to try and implement it, uh, has been put there. Um, it's a noble, it's a noble quest because obviously, uh, as I said, one of the four factors of production is labor. You want to have a la healthy labor force because when you have a healthy labor force, you have more productivity. So health is critical to a country. What's been lacking has been debates around the funding. And this is a huge topic across the world. In the, U in the U.S., uh, Medicare is mostly very private insurance-based, at least before Obama came. It was very much private in private, privately funded. But in the U.K., it's been more of, you know, your NHS, really are publicly funded. And we've never really had that debate in Kenya in terms of should healthcare be privately funded or publicly funded? So I think there is that assumption that maybe we can do a hybrid in Kenya and you say for the most basic of healthcare issues, those should be able to be sorted out within uh, a, a free facility. But for more specialized elective procedures, then those can be privately funded. And that seems to be where the debate sort of has centered on. Now to the question we you've raised very early on, how do we fund this? You know, because the Japanese can't give you funding all the time. What the Japanese provided was a grant to put up structures around it. So I don't expect to see significant on either either proposal. I don't ex until that funding part, because the funding part is critical. Healthcare, uh, you know, the budget allocation is quite significant. So for me, until I hear the funding part, I, I'm still very uh, 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 cautious around how well it will be implemented because funding is, the, is what makes it sustainable. I wonder, Wanangu, whether we have enough information on our sort of social database to differentiate between low and high income earners. So the suggestion that low income earners will pay 300 shillings, whereas the high-income earners will pay 3,000. The idea that for some, the lowest uh, income-generating people will somehow receive a stipend from the government of 6,000. Now, in a climate where we've had our huduma cards and they're still sort of floating across in the air, we don't know what became of them, uh, in a climate where we have a population census where the results don't actually indicate. We do not have uh, a European-style database where we can actually point to me or to you and say, one uh, economist, you're a high-income earner. Uh, so how are we going to start dishing this money out? That's a very good point, Molimo. Indeed, a big chunk of our economy is informal. If you look at the labor force, the working uh, population of this country, it's about 18, 19 million people. But what percent of that is in the formal sector? It's possibly 3 million. So you're talking of an economy in which 85% of the participants are in the informal space and only 15. And, that uh, and, and if I may add from my knowledge, if, you inf if informal means juakali, it's so juakali that you could be a multimillionaire sort of making... I won't use the word wheelbarrow, it's unfortunate, but making something, um, but that you are your gunny bags or, or selling maca, but your, your activity is very underground and you're probably making 10 times more money than I am going to the office every day, but you're completely off the scale of the KRA. I can never catch up with you selling your 
material in Gikomba, who knows how many of those shirts from abroad you've sold in a day. And that's exactly the story of Kenya. The data that we have it only speaks to that formula, that 15%. So it's not accurate. Right. To the point. Mm. It's not accurate. And uh, whether they can extrapolate to the informal sector is makes it a guesstimate. But when you have an informal, such a big uh, portion of the economy, 85% being informal, it means even the statistics. And that's why that question of who is the middle class in Kenya? You know, the statistics will tell you middle class is somebody maybe earning 60,000 shillings or something like that. But when but, you look... But more to the point, mm-hmm. uh, we've ac- uh, I've accepted, done. Mm-hmm. How, uh, from an economist's point of view, are you going to introduce measures unliked by many that are going to make this database more reliable? Because if you look at it, something that's sort of harassing us on our streets in the cities, the uh, border border drivers are going all hell. They're you know doing all sorts of things to people. Uh, but the minute you try to sort of create an app, there's a reference to an app here for one of the manifestos. The minute you try to bring people to book, then as an electorate, uh, somebody else says, oh, we love the border border people. Keep on doing what you're doing. And we go back to square one. So in other words, uh, you lose votes uh, the more you try to create discipline, which is a Kenyan problem. We, we dislike discipline. We, we sort of like this um, impunity climate. It's part of, oh, you say the words, you're the guest, not me. To your point, yes, indeed, we might not have the statistics, but the beauty about statistics is you get proxies. You can get proxies, and these proxies can tell you about the consumption levels of a country, even though it's not direct knowledge. And what are the proxies? Um, you can look at M-Pesa usage in regions. You can study uh, M-Pesa movement, M-Pesa collections, M-Pesa revenue. You can study household consumption. You can examine rent. Actually, rent is a critical part. In fact, what most statisticians use is they use they look at the rental uh capability of a place and they're able to deduce household income and based on that household income they're able to deduce this is what's average so in as much as i i concede that we might not have the statistics but they are proxies and i do believe most likely they will use these proxies to come up whether the proposals which you've said about 300 and between 3000 whether that's proportional it doesn't sound very proportional in my perspective i believe um, the high-income society can afford um, to pay more, uh, particularly on um, 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 on, on NHIF. Uh, but that's the direction we want to move this country into, where decisions are data-based. We have data-driven decision-making, and I believe that is the future. I'm going to move on to education. Again, we're just putting ideas into people's minds. We're not going to um, sort out the world's problems in an hour. I'm going to go to, if you would, uh, education. Again, uh, it seems to me as a lay person that in order to have a good educational system, it has to be somewhat uniform so that a child going to school in Nairobi has the same Um, opportunity. Again, I won't sort of uh, choose a supposedly dismissive part of the country, but you know what I mean. And the idea now we read in the papers, I I just love what we read in the papers, that some teachers don't want to go to certain areas because when they're going back to wherever they came back on holiday, they're shot in busloads. And now they're the promises that from somewhere within two years we are going to produce hundreds of thousands of highly qualified teachers when, again, we've had this conversation with another guest, when teaching is not the go-to profession because it's so poorly paid. So in other words, you could work out that, yes, everybody's going to, you can build buildings, you can build a, a thousand schools, but you won't have a highly educated populace that could compete on the world market. Um, the way the manifestos have approached education, which indeed is critical, is on two areas. One of the manifestos has talked about um, employing any unemployed teacher 
will be absorbed by the TSC. That has been one of uh, the promises. Another, but, that, but that's not a that's not a satisfying uh, assurance. It could be a crummy teacher who doesn't know anything about his subject matter. Right, but let, let me finish. The other um, political dividers talked about the delocalization, which you alluded to, the delocalization, which is a very huge point where teachers are sent to areas that are not areas where they come from. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand um, uh, the sociology of that space. And they find it very difficult. And uh, one of the other arms has really talked about removing the delocalization uh, policy and allowing people um, the flexibility to operate where they were. Then the third pillar in the education space is the issue of CBC, which at first was appeared to be divisive, but now almost everybody has sort of agreed that CBC... So a few months ago, it was a divisive issue where one uh, of them, Rangos, was saying Tutatoa, CBC, and the other one was saying we'll continue. But right now, it seems there used to be the argument. So I think the key things affecting teachers will be around that area of uh, uh, delocalization as a principle versus uh, absorption of teachers. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we have to take a short break. And then uh, we're not going to find out that much about you except your name today because there's so much to cover. Do forgive me. But uh, let's take a break and we've still got some rubrics to cover. The best mix of music. Capital FM. Mwanangu, I'm going to ask you to go for it. We've got 15 minutes. Um, uh, well, it's coming to an end. Women. Uh, the women seem to be given a special uh, focus in both of these top-tier manifestos. Absolutely. And there is that recognition that um, it's the largest part of the population and it's a significant constituency. And uh, rightly so, uh, they have... Uh, being given the platform. Um, one of the manifestos I talked about a women's charter, they've had a big event where the, the women's charter where some of the issues were half, 50% of cabinet will be women. Uh, it's a whole charter. Um, the other uh, divide has talked about creating a, a, an office in the office of the president that really where this is a sort of like a, a, a leader who really advocates at the highest level of government, uh, women policy moving forward. So there is that realization that this year it's going to be significant to get that vote. And I do believe those will be the two sort of uh, main uh, thinkings behind behind that. Right. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that because the, uh, the seed has been sown in the minds of our listeners. I'm going to go straight on to this idea of both uh, manifestos going into the idea of social security being secure and again uh, NHIF being mentioned when you're old when you get a heart attack and again this perhaps is the most undoable of the promises ever yeah, to I my found, mind yeah I found this Malimo to be the most interesting because it's social security is the one area that has been really lacking if you compare Kenyan society to uh, the western world um, so we have one of the political parties talking about your 6,000 shillings to highly vulnerable families every month. And that has been a big uh, feature of that manifesto. Uh, then you also have the other political party talking of unemployment insurance, which I found very interesting. I've never heard of that because that's a big thing in the West. Unemployment, if you lose your job, like during COVID, 2 million people lost their jobs. So this idea that you can have unemployment insurance that at least safeguards you from uh, the difficulties of being unemployed, I thought that was very interesting. But it came off as in a very small paragraph, almost as an afterthought, because you don't see it. It was it's mentioned once, but you don't see like the thinking, the funding. So again, back to the question of how do we fund these things? How much will it be need? How many people are losing jobs? How much do we need? So for me, <laughs> the numbers. You know, as an economist, you're numbers people, and I think that numbers part is really what's been lacking from this. So good ideas, because we do need a support, social security, particularly for the unemployed, uh, but even for highly vulnerable families. But we don't see the numbers coming, because they say it's, it comes to about 14 billion shillings a month 
for the 6,000 shillings per family. But you're not being told, you know, we'll have a tax, sort of like a tax increase to support that. So I think that's what makes people very worried that the thinking is, the visions are good, but the clear thinking is still not quite there. Thank you very much. I'm going to take you on to another line of thinking. And this is a, this is unfair on you as a guest, but this whole idea of upholding the Constitution, the whole idea of integrity, the whole idea of fighting against corruption. And again, you have this sort of backdrop in all the debates and all the headlines. Somebody, the leaders accusing each other of being sort of, you're the mega thief. No, you're not. I'm the mega thief, etc., etc., etc. And embedded in these constitutions they're sort of saying things like um, we're going to end extrajudicial killings or we're going to uh, stop corruption now if you say you're going to end something it seems that you are admitting in some way shape or form that there have been extrajudicial killings and this is really intriguing to me because this is the first time i've seen a direct admission that we live in a society where there are extrajudicial killings and they're going to stop after August the 9th. I found it very worrying too, Malimo. I, I can't hide that. When I reflected on that particular area, particularly on that part of extrajudicial and we did see pronouncements, particularly in the northern part of Kenya, in Masabit County, where the numbers have been quite, quite significant and that has came up in some of the debates and the town halls that we've seen. Yes, there is an admission that that has happened. But for me, I think more interestingly is what are the proposed solutions towards fighting it? It's, 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 it's horrific that it's been admitted that it happens. But I think for me, it's what are the solutions? And one of the political parties has talked about creating independent funds, independent uh, budgets for the police, independent budgets for the ESCC, so that they're not dependent on the office of uh, the president where they do get their funding from. I think that's interesting and I think it has its merit to, to the level of autonomy. Um, but again, it asks, it, it for me what I worry is, at the end of the day, all these matters end up at the judiciary. What are you going to do at the judiciary? Because I'm not seeing any of the political parties really talk about increasing funding to the judiciary. Yes, so you're going to have all these cases, but the level of prosecution... How are you going to assist if the judiciary, the CJ said that the judiciary is highly, highly underfunded? We're going to become a manufacturing nation in the brave new world. Uh, our industries, uh, please comment. I think that was a bit problematic because manufacturing is an area where Kenya has struggled. It has potential, but has struggled. In fact, our share of manufacturing to GDP has reduced. In my humble opinion, Kenya's real competitive advantage is, is in the services. I think that is where we do excellent uh, in terms. But we can grow our manufacturing to at least double digits of our, of, 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 of our GDP. One of the manifestos says taking manufacturing to become 30%, a third, that's larger than agriculture. I think that's highly, highly, highly unlikely. I think what we can do is build the infrastructure to create light manufacturing, then over the years make our our manufacturing more sophisticated. Could you morph? Could you morph? I'm getting closer to the microphone. I was maybe falling asleep. <laughs> now I'm listening to you intently. Could you morph instantly into ICT, the the world of the future? Yes, indeed. So some of the proposals around ICT has been around. Uh, one one of the parties I talked about a 2.5 percent of the budget going towards ICT hubs. I, these are hubs for innovation. These are hubs for uh, the next big things. You are startups that ideally should create the next level of jobs. So that you have a 2.5%, which is quite big, given that Kenya's budget, Kenya's GDP is about $100 billion. Uh, the other side has talked about um, connecting ICT to manufacturing. One of the parties is very keen on manufacturing. So everything appears to be rotating around manufacturing. So creating uh, ICT jobs that are linked to manufacturing. I think it's because maybe they've seen the likes of Japan, Germany, where ICT has been linked to, you know, your Daimlers, your Toyotas. I think that's where that thinking could be coming. To the extent that Kenya can replicate that, I find it 
um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a bit cautious with that example because those countries also have their own histories. Uh, but ICT to drive services, you know, look at M-Pesa, how M-Pesa has just unlocked a whole new population, whole new economy. So that's why I believe the services, financial services, ICT, I believe ICT can unlock more in our services space uh, than in the manufacturing. Housing and settlements. This idea, again, uh, we, we're kind of, we're an African society and we're, the idea, rather like having expressways, the index of development is having units with houses that are concrete with a door and two windows and we're going to build X number of thousands of those for the one inchi so that, again, we become uh, replicas of the typical Western city. Well, Malimo, housing is already part of the current big four agenda, um, affordable housing. Um, has it been successful or not? That's still um, quite debatable. I think the momentum was there at the beginning uh, with houses in Pangani or in Mombasa, in Buxton. But it's, I think the momentum has slowed down. My challenge, my, my challenge with the current proposals is they don't talk about why the current housing in the big four has not worked and what they'll try to do differently. So one of the uh, parties has talked about having a resettlement fund, a fund that buys land and resettles people in the way uh, in the colonial Kenya after the British left, how there was a resettlement. That's been a big idea. Another one I think is going to continue with the big four as it is, really identifying pieces. But the challenge with housing is, you know, you know, the, the cost of land you know, is still quite significant. These are the, the, the dynamics. In fact, there are people who say, why don't you empower Kenyans? Why don't you grow the economy so people have good jobs so they can do their own purchasing? It's a much better approach. Uh, I'm going to ask the, the trick question here. I, I don't think that if you have a five-year span in, in power that you can actually do all these things. So there ought to be a priority uh, and um, as a school teacher myself for years and years, I would say educate people and the rest will take care of itself. What is your priority? I think that the biggest priority has to be around creating a good business environment because when you create a good business environment, entrepreneurship thrives because Kenyans are naturally entrepreneurial. And I think if, and that's why I think they're all concerned about the economy. So I think if we can start reducing our public debt, our government debt, we start, stop crowding out the private sector, start supporting businesses with low interest rates, low taxation. Actually, that's all businesses ever want in Kenya. A low interest rate regime, a low taxation regime, regulations, your business licenses, simplifying. If you can do those three, you can have the kind of, wealth creation we saw during the Kibaki age. And to your point of long-term thinking, the Vision 2030 is seven years away from being completed. So we need to start thinking, after the Vision 2030, can we have another Vision 2060 that should guide us for the next 30 years? Wow. Um, I think um, you know what you're talking about. Thank you so very much. We have to stop there. Uh, do continue to give us feedback, hopefully positive and reassuring, on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 0701-984-984. I've been talking to Harvard-educated Dr. Ken Gishinga. And you've been listening to John Sibi Okumu on Wednesday. Thank you. Until next time. The best mix of music. Capital